Book Two, Chapter Four, Section Fifteen of Mister Britling Sees It Through by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Fifteen. These letters weighed heavily upon Mister Britling's mind. He perceived that this precociously wise, subtle youngster of his was now close up to the line of injury and death, going to and fro from it in a perpetual fluctuating danger. At any time now, in the day or night, the evil thing might wing its way to him. If Mr. Britling could have prayed, he would have prayed for Hugh. He began and never finished some ineffectual prayers. He tried to persuade himself of a Roman stoicism, that he would be sternly proud, sternly satisfied, if this last sacrifice for his country was demanded from him. He perceived he was merely humbugging himself. This war had no longer the simple greatness that would make any such stern happiness possible. The disaster to Teddy and Mrs. Teddy hit him hard. He winced at the thought of Mrs. Teddy's white face, the unspoken accusation in her eyes. He felt he could never bring himself to say his one excuse to her. I did not keep Hugh back. If I had done that, then you might have the right to blame. If he had overcome every other difficulty in the way to an heroic pose, there was still Hugh's unconquerable lucidity of outlook. War was a madness. But what else was to be done? What else could be done? We could not give in to Germany. If a lunatic struggles, sane men must struggle too. Mr. Britling had ceased to write about the war at all. All his later writings about it had been abandoned unfinished. He could not imagine them counting, affecting anyone, producing any effect. Indeed, he was writing now very intermittently. His contributions to the times had fallen away. He was perpetually thinking now about the war, about life and death, about the religious problems that had seemed so remote in the days of the peace. But none of his thinking would become clear and definite enough for writing. All the clear stars of his mind were hidden by the stormy clouds of excitement that the daily newspaper perpetually renewed, and by the daily developments of life. And just as his professional income shrank before his mental confusion and impotence, the private income that came from his and his wife's investments became uncertain. She had had two thousand pounds in the Constantinople loan, seven hundred in debentures of the Ottoman railway. He had held similar sums, in two Hungarian and one Bulgarian loan, in a linoleum factory at Rouen, and in a Swiss hotel company. All these stopped payments, and the dividends from their other investments shrank. There seemed no limit set to the possibilities of shrinkage of capital and income. Income tax had leapt to colossal dimensions. The cost of most things had risen, and the tangle of life was now increased by the need for retrenchments and economies. He decided that Gladys, 
the facetiously named automobile was a luxury, and sold her for a couple of hundred pounds. He lost his gardener, who had gone to higher-priced work with the miller, and he had great trouble to replace him, so that the garden became disagreeably unkempt and unsatisfactory. He had to give up his frequent trips to London. He was obliged to defer Statesminster for the boys. For a time, at any rate, they must go as day-boys to Brinsmead. At every point he met this uncongenial consideration of ways and means. For years now he had gone easy, lived with a certain self-indulgence. It was extraordinarily vexatious to have one's greater troubles for one's country and one's son and one's faith, crossed and complicated by these little troubles of the extra sixpence and the untimely bill. What worried his mind perhaps more than anything else was his gradual loss of touch with the essential issues of the war. At first the militarism, the aggression of Germany, had seemed so bad that he could not see the action of Britain and her allies as anything but entirely righteous. He had seen the war plainly and simply in the phrase, Now this militarism must end. He had seen Germany as a system, as imperialism and Junkerism, as a callous materialist aggression, as the spirit that makes war, and the Allies as the protest of humanity against all these evil things. Insensibly, in spite of himself, this first version of the war was giving place to another. The tawdry rhetorical German emperor, who had been the great antagonist at the outset, the last upholder of Caesarism, God's anointed, with the withered arm and the mailed fist, had receded from the foreground of the picture. That truer Germany, which is thought and system, which is the will to do things thoroughly, the Germany of Ostwald and the once rejected Hindenburg, was coming to the fore. It made no apology for the errors and crimes that had been imposed upon it by its Hohenzollern leadership, but it fought now to save itself from the destruction and division that would be its inevitable lot if it accepted defeat too easily. Fought to hold out, fought for a second chance, with discipline, with skill and patience, with a steadfast will. It fought with science, it fought with economy, with machines and thought against all too human antagonists. It necessitated an implacable resistance, but also it commanded respect. Against it fought three great peoples with as fine a will. But they had neither the unity, the habitual discipline, nor the science of Germany. And it was the latter defect that became more and more the distressful matter of Mr. Britling's thoughts. France, after her initial experiences, after her first reeling month, had risen from the very verge of defeat to a steely splendor of resolution. But England and Russia, those twin slack giants, still wasted force, were careless, negligent, uncertain. Everywhere up and down the scale, from the stupidity of the uniform sandbags and Hugh's young officer who would not use a map, to the general conception and direction of the war, 
Mr. Britling's inflamed and oversensitized intelligence perceived the same bad qualities for which he had so often railed upon his countrymen in the days of the peace. That impatience, that indolence, that wastefulness and inconclusiveness, that failure to grip issues and do obviously necessary things. The same lax qualities that had brought England so close to the supreme imbecility of a civil war in Ireland in July 1914 were now muddling and prolonging the war, and postponing, it might be forever, the victory that had seemed so certain only a year ago. The politician still intrigued, the ineffectives still directed. Against brains used to the utmost, their fight was a stupid thrusting forth of men and men and yet more men, men badly trained, under-equipped, stupidly led. A press clamor for invention and scientific initiative was stifled under a committee of elderly celebrities and eminent dufferdom. From the outset, the Ministry of Munitions seemed under the influence of the businessman. It is true that righteousness should triumph over the tyrant and the robber, but have carelessness and incapacity any right to triumph over capacity and foresight? Men were coming now to dark questionings between this intricate choice. And, indeed, was our cause all righteousness? There, surely, is the worst doubt of all for a man whose son is facing death. Were we, indeed, standing against tyranny for freedom? There came drifting to Mr. Britling's ears a confusion of voices, voices that told of reaction, of the schemes of employers to best the trade unions, of greedy shippers and greedy house landlords reaping their harvest, of waste and treason in the very households of the ministry, of religious cant and intolerance at large, of self-advertisement written in letters of blood, of forestalling and jobbery, of irrational and exasperating oppressions in India and Egypt. It came with a shock to him, too, that Hugh should see so little else than madness in the war, and have so pitiless a realization of its essential futility. The boy forced his father to see, what, indeed, all along he had been seeing more and more clearly. The war, even by the standards of adventure and conquest, had long since become a monstrous absurdity. Some way there must be, out of this bloody entanglement that was yielding victory to neither side, that was yielding nothing but waste and death beyond all precedent. The vast majority of people everywhere must be desiring peace, willing to buy peace at any reasonable price. And in all the world it seemed there was insufficient capacity to end the daily butchery and achieve the peace that was so universally desired, the peace that would be anything better than a breathing space for further warfare. Every day came the papers with the balanced story of battles, losses, destructions, ships sunk, towns smashed, and never a decision, never a sign of decision. One Saturday afternoon Mr. Britling found himself with Mrs. Britling at Clavering's. 
Lady Homerton was in mourning for her two nephews, the Glassington boys, who had both been killed, one in Flanders, the other in Gallipoli. Rayburn was there, too, despondent and tired-looking. There were three young men in khaki, one with the red of a staff officer. There were two or three women whom Mr. Britling had not met before, and Mrs. Sharpspur, the novelist, fresh from nursing experience among the convalescents in the south of France. But he was disgusted to find that the gathering was dominated by his old antagonist, Lady Frensham, unsubdued, unaltered, rampant over them all, arrogant, impudent, insulting. She was in mourning. She had the most splendid black furs Mr. Britling had ever seen. Her large triumphant profile came out of them like the head of a vulture out of its ruff. Her elder brother was a wounded prisoner in Germany. Her second was dead. It would seem that hers were the only sacrifices the war had yet extorted from anyone. She spoke as though it gave her the sole right to criticize the war or claim compensation for the war. Her incurable propensity to split the country, to make mischievous accusations against classes and districts and public servants, was having full play. She did her best to provoke Mr. Britling into a dispute, and throw some sort of imputation upon his patriotism, as distinguished from her own noisy and intolerant conceptions of loyalty. She tried him first with conscription. She threw out insults at the shirkers and the funk classes. All the middle-class people clung on to their wretched little businesses, made any sort of excuse. Mr. Britling was stung to defend them. A business, he said acidly, isn't like land, which waits and grows rich for its owner. And these people can't leave ferrety little agents behind them when they go off to serve. Tens of thousands of middle-class men have ruined themselves and flung away every prospect they had in the world to go to this war. And scores of thousands haven't, said Lady Frensham. They are the men I'm thinking of. Mr. Britling ran through a little list of aristocratic stay-at-homes that began with a duke. And not a soul speaks to them in consequence, she said. She shifted her attack to the labor people. They would rather see the country defeated than submit to a little discipline. Because they have no faith in the house of lawyers or the house of landlords, said Mr. Britling, who can blame them? She proceeded to tell everybody what she would do with strikers. She would give them short shrift. She would give them a taste of the Prussian way, homeopathic treatment. But of course, old vote-catching Asquith daren't. He daren't. Mr. Britling opened his mouth and said nothing. He was silenced. The man in khaki listened respectfully but ambiguously. One of the younger ladies, it seemed, was entirely of Lady Frensham's way of thinking, and anxious to show it. The good lady, having now got her hands upon the cabinet, proceeded to deal faithfully with its two-and-twenty members. Winston Churchill had overridden Lord Fisher upon the question of Gallipoli, and incurred terrible responsibilities. Lord Haldane, 
she called him Tubby Haldane, was a convicted traitor. The man's a German out and out. Oh, what if he hasn't a drop of German blood in his veins? He's a German by choice, which is worse. I thought he had a certain capacity for organization, said Mr. Britling. We don't want his organization, and we don't want him, said Lady Frensham. Mr. Britling pleaded for particulars of the late Lord Chancellor's treasons. There were no particulars. It was just an idea the good lady had got into her head, that had got into a number of accessible heads. There was only one strong man in all the country now, Lady Frensham insisted. That was Sir Edward Carson. Mr. Britling jumped in his chair. "'But has he ever done anything?' he cried, "'except embitter Ireland?' Lady Frensham did not hear that question. She pursued her glorious theme. Lloyd George, who had once been worthy only of the gallows, was now the sole minister fit to put beside her hero. He had won her heart by his condemnation of the working man. He was the one man who was not afraid to speak out, to tell them they drank, to tell them they shirked and loafed, to tell them plainly that if defeat came to this country, the blame would fall upon them. No! cried Mr. Britling. Yes! said Lady Frensham. Upon them and those who have flattered and misled them. And so on. It presently became necessary for Lady Homerden to rescue Mr. Britling from the great lady's patriotic tramplings. He found himself drifting into the autumnal garden. The show of dahlias had never been so wonderful. In the company of Rayburn and the staff officer, and a small woman who was presently discovered to be remarkably well informed. They were all despondent. I think all this promiscuous blaming of people is quite the worst and most ominous thing about us just now," said Mr. Britling, after the restful pause that followed the departure from the presence of Lady Frensham. It goes on everywhere," said the staff officer. Is it really honest? said Mr. Britling. Rayburn, after reflection, decided to answer. As far as it is stupid, yes. There's a lot of blame coming. There's bound to be a day of reckoning, and I suppose we've all got an instinctive disposition to find a scapegoat for our common sins. The Tory press is pretty rotten, and there's a strong element of mere personal spite. In the Churchill attacks, for example. Personal jealousy, probably. Our old families seem to have got vulgar-spirited imperceptibly, in a generation or so. They quarrel and shirk and lay blame, exactly as bad servants do, and things are still far too much in their hands. Things are getting muffed, there can be no doubt about that. Not fatally, but still rather seriously. And the government. It was human before the war, and we've added no archangels. There's muddle, there's mutual suspicion. You never know what newspaper office Lloyd George won't be in touch with next. He's honest and patriotic and energetic, but he's mortally afraid of old women and class intrigues. He doesn't know where to get his backing. He's got all a labor member's terror of the dagger at his back.
there's a lack of nerve, too, in getting rid of prominent officers, who have friends. The staff officer nodded. Northcliffe seems to me to have a case, said Mr. Britling. Everyone abuses him. I'd stop his daily mail, said Rayburn. I'd leave the Times, but I'd stop the Daily Mail on the score of its placards alone. It overdoes Northcliffe. It translates him into the shrieks and yells of underlings. The plain fact is that Northcliffe is scared out of his wits by German efficiency. And in wartime, when a man is scared out of his wits, whether he is honest or not, you put his head in a bag or hold a pistol to it to calm him. What is the good of all this clamoring for a change of government? We haven't a change of government. It's like telling a tramp to get a change of linen. Our men, all our public men, are second-rate men, with the habits of advocates. There is nothing masterful in their minds. How can you expect the system to produce anything else? But they are doing as well as they can, and there is no way of putting in anyone else now, and there you are. Meanwhile, said Mr. Britling, our boys get killed. They'd get killed all the more if you had, let us say, Carson and Lloyd George and Northcliffe and Lady Frensham, with, I suppose, Austin Harrison and Horatio Bottomley thrown in, as a strong, silent government. I'd rather have Northcliffe as dictator than that. We can't suddenly go back on the past and alter our type. We didn't listen to Matthew Arnold. We've never thoroughly turned out and cleaned up our higher schools. We've resisted instruction. We've preferred to maintain our national luxuries of a bench of bishops and party politics, and compulsory Greek and the university sneer, and Lady Frensham, and all that sort of thing. And here we are. Well, damn it, we're in for it now. We've got to plow through with it, with what we have, as what we are. The young staff officer nodded. He thought that was about it. "'You've got no sons,' said Mr. Britling. "'I'm not even married,' said Rayburn, as though he thanked God. The little well-informed lady remarked abruptly that she had two sons. One was just home wounded from Souffle Bay. What her son told her made her feel very grave. She said that the public was still quite in the dark about the Battle of Onafarta. It had been a hideous muddle, and we had been badly beaten. The staff work had been awful. Nothing joined up, nothing was on the spot and in time. The water supply, for example, had gone wrong. The men had been mad with thirst. One regiment, which she named, had not been supported by another. When at last the first came back, the two battalions fought in the trenches, regardless of the enemy. There had been no leading, no correlation, no plan. Some of the guns, she declared, had been left behind in Egypt. Some of the train was untraceable to this day. It was mislaid somewhere in the Levant. At the beginning, Sir Ian Hamilton had not even been present. He had failed to get there in time. It had been the reckless throwing away of an army and so hopeful an army. Her son declared it meant the complete failure of the Dardanelles project. And when one hears how near we came to victory, she cried, 
and left it at that. Three times this year,' said Rayburn, "'we have missed victories because of the badness of our staff work. It's no good picking out scapegoats. It's a question of national habit. It's because the sort of man we turn out from our public schools has never learned how to catch trains, get to an office on the minute, pack a knapsack properly, or do anything smartly and quickly, anything whatever that he can possibly get done for him. You can't expect men who are habitually easy-going to keep bucked up to a high pitch of efficiency for any length of time. All their training is against it, all their tradition. They hate being prigs. An Englishman will be any sort of stupid failure rather than appear a prig. That's why we've lost three good fights that we ought to have won, and thousands and thousands of men, and material and time precious beyond reckoning. We've lost a year. We've dashed the spirit of our people. My boy in Flanders, said Mr. Britling, says about the same thing. He says our officers have never learned to count beyond ten, and that they are scared at the sight of a map. And the war goes on, said the little woman. How long, O oh Lord, how long, cried Mr. Britling. I'd give them another year, said the staff officer, just going as we are going. Then something must give way. There will be no money anywhere. There will be no more men. I suppose they'll feel that shortage first, anyhow. Russia alone has over twenty millions. That's about the size of it, said Rayburn. Do you think, sir, there will be civil war? asked the young staff officer abruptly after a pause. There was a little interval before anyone answered this surprising question. After the peace, I mean, said the young officer. There'll be just the devil to pay, said Rayburn. One thing after another in the country is being pulled up by its roots, reflected Mr. Britling. We've never produced a plan for the war, and it isn't likely we shall have one for the peace, said Rayburn, and added, and Lady Frensham's little lot will be doing their level best to sit on the safety valve. They'll rake up Ireland and Ulster from the very start. But I doubt if Ulster will save them. We shall squabble. What else do we ever do? No one seemed able to see more than that. A silence fell on the little party. Well, thank heaven for these dahlias, said Rayburn, affecting the philosopher. The young staff officer regarded the dahlias without enthusiasm. End of Book Two Chapter 4, Section 15